Hello, you're listening to Angel Nears the Podcast. Angel Nears is a Silicon Valley community for startup builders where founders and operators share their firsthand knowledge on how to build and scale startups. I'm your host, Oli Kujikov, and our guest today has firsthand knowledge on building and scaling startups. It's Bruce Cleveland, the author of Traversing the Traction Gap. Uh, Bruce has been a Silicon Valley CMO and CPO, holding senior executive positions at many big companies, including Oracle, Apple, Siebel Systems, and C3AI. He's also been a general partner, a GP in two venture capital firms. So, like we said, operator sharing his firsthand knowledge on how to build and scale startups. I'm excited to have Bruce on today to talk about how founders can improve their odds of success while traversing the traction gap. Uh, we're going to talk about what that is and where most startups fail. But before we get into it, Bruce, welcome to the show. How's it going? Look great. Uh, thank you for having me. I appreciate it. Yep. Excited to talk to you. You know, I was, I was reading about, you know, what you've done, uh, what you wrote. It sounds like you have a long background in Silicon Valley. So tell me about yourself. How did you get started as an entrepreneur? Well, I entered the Valley um, back in the early 80s, and I was a member of a little tiny startup on Sand Hill Road called Oracle. It was still a private company with maybe less than 100 people, but it wasn't exactly brand new, maybe a couple years old, and uh, maybe, you know, a few million in revenue. And uh, I think we grew that company fairly successfully. I, there I was uh, in charge of the Unix product line division. That's the way that Oracle was constructed back then in terms of an organization. And I went on from there to uh, do a variety of different things. The next was working for Apple Computer running an engineering division, um, several of them. And we built a bunch of object technology work, a lot of stuff that was a sort of a precursor to Java. And uh, from that... I rejoined Tom Siebel, where I worked for him at Oracle, at a startup called Siebel Systems. And we grew that company from about $2 million in revenue, and five years later, it was about $2 billion in revenue. And as far as I still understand, it's the fastest growing software company in U.S. history, and it built the, what we all now know as a CRM market. We sold the company in 2006 to Oracle for about $6 billion, if I remember right. I decided not to go back to Oracle because there were thousands of people working there at that point. And I tried my hand at venture capital. I did that for about 15 years with two different firms, investing in mostly ideas. Some of those ideas you may have heard of, an idea that was formed by three guys called Marketo that became a fairly successful company. Another company called Workday that you might have heard of. Uh, mostly enterprise software companies uh, using a SaaS business model. Did that for about 15 years and helped to build a, um, a, uh, a number of different things. One, I, I helped to form personally two companies while I was in venture capital. And um, one of those is still operating and the other isn't. And went on to, uh, at, at that point, when I was deciding about what I was going to do uh, for the last few years of me working in technology, because I've been in it for about 40 years at that point, I decided that I would uh, go back to work for Tom Siebel and be part of the executive team that would take the company public. We did that successfully in the company C3AI. We did that successfully in December of 2020 under the New York Stock Exchange under the symbol AI and went ahead and worked for about another year and then found my replacement and retired from technology to go do a few other things that I had wanted to do for many years, but really didn't have the opportunity to do it. Along the way, I also wrote a book called Traversing the Traction Gap because I had seen a lot of companies come into the 
venture capital firms I was with. And I wasn't really happy with the way in which we always treated the entrepreneurs. I didn't think that we disclosed necessarily what we really thought about the product or idea, et cetera. And I felt that that was rather disingenuous. So I decided to unwrap the mystery and expose what does it take to go from ideation to scale? What are the venture capitalists looking for as investors? And what do you need to think about as entrepreneurs in order to build the financial product? Because that's really what you're building for an investor. The, the, if it, you built a black box of technology, they could probably care less if they put a dollar in and a hundred came out. So I wanted to be able to expose, well, what does it take? What do you need to say? What do you need to do? How do you need to prepare in order to raise capital? And how do you then need to go and build your company and scale it into a multi-billion dollar outcome? And, and I thought that that might be something that would be of interest to entrepreneurs because they really don't get a great shot at that seeing what goes on behind the scenes. And I decided that writing this book would be potentially interesting. So I wrote a prescriptive guide that is a how-to book, how to do it, to go from ideation to scale. And uh, we delivered that in February of 2019 and went on to be a pretty good, su successful book. It's being taught, used at Stanford, Columbia, Harvard, some pretty good schools, and um, has some pretty good reviews. So pretty proud of the work. And it's ongoing as we speak. I'm working with a couple of companies in an advisory position, taking the principles that uh, I wrote in the book and I also use to help take C3AI public. So I, I'm a believer in the principles. Not only did I write them, but I use them. And, uh, and so that kind of leads me to where I am today. Tell me about writing the book, how it all started. Well, in a horrible moment of weakness, probably after a couple scotches, I suspect. Um, my partner at, at one of my venture firms, his name's Jeffrey Moore. You might have read some of his books, Crossing the Chasm, uh, Escape Velocity, Zone to Win. Pretty, pretty well-known author, business author here in the Valley and also around the world. And uh, quite a big speaker. He works with, with Benioff at Salesforce. He's worked with Satya at uh, Microsoft. I mean, just a, a lot of, a lot of um, different uh, companies. And, uh, and Jeff's a, a phenomenal person. When I introduce some of these concepts, these, these principles of the Traction Gap Framework, and that's, really, that's really what the book is about, is these, these no, this notion of a set of prescriptive uh, techniques to go from coming up with an idea and then taking it to scale. Jeff said, you know, the, your track record in terms of investing has been pretty substantial. And as a result, he said, you know, you really need to take these, these principles and, and document them and explain them to people. So after sort of badgering me for a while about it, I said, okay, I would do it. <laughs> and so about a year and a half later, the book came out. It was, it was quite an effort. It's quite an effort to write these things. It takes a lot of research, it takes a lot of time, evenings, weekends, et cetera. And I, um, I'm glad I did it, but it was certainly, it, it certainly wasn't easy trying to do that and all the other things that, that comprise my job. Yeah. No, a year and a half sounds pretty quick. You actually mentioned uh, when we were pre, pre pre-recording you mentioned you race cars so do you do everything fast <laughs> i don't know let's see i used to, i race sailboats i flew planes the cars is just kind of i think the natural evolution out of all of that stuff i knew that when i um, wanted to retire i uh, needed something to be able to keep me occupied um, i had gone and taken a, an 18 month sabbatical back in the 2000s and quickly realized that without really interesting hobbies uh, it doesn't 
for a while, it's interesting to be to not have to go to work in the morning, but you really do need to be, at least I need to be compelled each day to accomplish some things. So for me, my ready, <laughs> my readying skills for retirement really predicated around, well, this racing thing. And my son-in-law has been doing racing for a long time. And he said, hey, would you like to learn? So this sounded like a great idea <laughs> so, <laughs> until the first time I went out and did it was and said, oh, Holy crap, how do you guys do this stuff? So it's it's a fantastic uh, both physical and intellectual sport. Every time you learn something, there's something else to learn. And I've got two pro coaches who are phenomenal. I mean, they're world-class racers who uh, are now in old, right, in their 40s. And um, they're, they're still pretty dang good. So I have the benefit of having um, professional athletes, uh, professional race, race drivers work with me, um, and uh, I, I really enjoy it. So, yeah, I'd like to, you know, I don't know about, it's not the going fast, actually. It's the, um, it's the intellectual pursuit of tracking down your competitor and beating them. <laughs> that, that, interest is, that interests me. Wow. Well, let's get into uh, bridging the traction gap, talking about competition. So, let's talk about the startup's journey. A lot of times, uh, they... You know, you look back on a startup's journey, they, they look like this kind of epic or odyssey. How is a startup's journey like a, a long story? And maybe what are the phases of, uh, of the journey? Yeah, well, what you don't want is it to become the holy grail from Monty Python. <laughs> That's for sure. So, you know, in it, the, the issue is that it's not a, it, and I think much like, you know, the ec- epic poems and ec- epic stories uh, that of the, of literature, I think there's always sort of the heroes. There's, there's usually some sort of villain that needs to get defeated. In this case, the hero is the startup team and the villain is the, the market that it wishes to pursue and slay, if you will. And th- it's not straightforward, right? I mean, there's, there's fits and starts and it's just, it's never a smooth progression. It's, you make, you make a number of steps forward and and then your your journey gets um sidelined for a number of reasons you know just like a lot of things like in don quixote or or in the iliad or odyssey so the in that way it's like it's like an epic but it is t- typically done in from the standpoint of the ceo or the founder it's usually felt like it's a pretty lonely journey and there's a lot of things that come up along the way that that the, that team or those people, the CEO, uh, he or she has likely not experienced in the past. There are uh, many different skills that you need to have, and in order to be successful, um, you can't just be a technologist. You have to be a storyteller. You have to be able to know how to partner with other companies. You need to be able to sell. Uh, you need to understand finances. You need to understand product. It's it's just a there's a myriad skills that are required in order to be successful as the CEO or the founder. And the fact is that lots of people initially desire that, that job. Um, but many find that, that it's, they're ill-equipped to actually, um, to execute the journey. So uh, when you read about failures, you know, roughly about 85% of all startups fail. If it's a B2C company, it's about 94% of B2C startups fail. And they fail for the, the number one reason um, that's been documented, cited by a number of research uh, studies. Number one reason is no market need. And what you discover quickly is that many companies just don't, many startups, and, and I would say even incumbent companies, um, other than maybe the consumer, the, ver- the, the consumer companies, don't really do 
enough market due diligence. They don't really consider uh, what are what are people looking for. When I mean by market due diligence, I mean whoever you're going to sell to, whatever product it is that you that you envision. You need to be able to go have a discussion. If it's a B two B product, those products are are purchased based upon committee decisions, typically, unless it's a really small business. And you need to understand, well, what is an individual contributor, manager, director, executive, and uh, the senior executive team think about? Is this a must-have technology? Is it a nice-to-have technology? How do you compel people to make it a must-have technology? And so, the, uh, the journey, as I've described it, is you need to come up with an idea. You need to what I call market IQ, you need to go out and test your hypotheses to see whether or not they're accurate. You actually don't need a product. You can do this just using PowerPoint or any type of mock-up technology, and you can show somebody what you're thinking about and get their reaction. You can get reaction to what does it do? How does it do it? How do you, it doesn't have to be perfect. How would you price it, et cetera. And so you can get a pretty good idea from without ever having to spend any money coding the product or developing the product. You can get a pretty good idea about what people might think about it. And from there, you need to basically build a set of, and this is how the framework works. It's a, it's a continuum on the left is when you begin with an idea, and then you traverse a number of different value inflection points. And the value inflection points, pretty simple idea too. You reach a point where you have diminished the risk of the company by proving something, uh, thereby improving significantly, usually, the value of your company. And so, these value inflection points in the traction gap framework are pretty simple. You have something called, and I, I, I built all the, the terminology, the vernacular off of minimum viable product because people tend to kind of know what that is. We don't have to explain that too much. So, these terms that I came up with uh, effectively borrow from that, that uh, body of work. The, so, minimum viable, viable product, before that, we need to have something I call minimum viable category. That is, what's what's the name of your new category, your invention? A category name is typically something a name of a problem. Uh, think of CRM or business into BI or ERP or SCM. I don't really have to. Exp- if you're in the if you're in tech, you know what those things are because you know there's been many many years of companies promoting and explaining what that is. Your job is to not enter an existing category. Because the category king, the market leader in that category, will, will slay you pretty quickly. They define the attributes of the category. They define you know, how they're going to play, and you're going to have to play their game. So, the strategy, and it's not really, it, it's not really something you can avoid. The strategy is you need to develop a new category. You need to explain what it is, its attributes, and you need to position yourself as the thought leader in that category before you ever reach um, or on the way to reaching minimum viable product. After minimum viable category, it's, you have a, you're working on a product then called, you come with an initial product release, you get some beta feedback, you do some work to make the product work better, and eventually reach a point that we all recognize called minimum viable product, MVP. Um, from there, you go on to something else I call minimum viable repeatability. You've built the product, multiple versions, you've sold it multiple times, you hired multiple people potentially, and you may have some systems in place that you use to run the business. 
whether that's marketing automation systems, Salesforce automation systems, backend office systems, whatever. And then finally, if you do it enough time, rinse and repeat those sales, you begin to understand that if you say this and demo that and do this, X percent of the time, some kind of opportunity will close into real revenue. And if once you figure that out, then you really ramp the company to reach something called minimum viable traction. And each one of these, by the way, value inflection points, as I describe in the book, have real revenue attached to it, real things. And it's all girded by four pillars, product, revenue, team, and systems. And each one of these value inflection points, you need to take a look at these four pillars and see how you're doing compared to others who have passed this way in the, in the past successfully. The Pillars themselves take a different point of prominence depending upon which value induction point we're talking about. We're talking about a minimum bio category or initial product release there. It's really team and, um, and the product that, that take the four. Uh, whereas as you finally break into the, the, the traction gap period from MVP to MVT, minimum viable traction, other things come to the fore, like, for example, systems. Systems aren't really as important until you begin to scale. And that would really be the point between minimum viable repeatability and minimum viable traction. And so in the book, I have a whole bunch of metrics that talk about what these are. They're mostly, I describe these in terms of B2B SaaS companies, but the concepts, the principles, et cetera, uh, remain the same regardless of business model. And I guess maybe the, what I would summarize the book is it's really about the fact that as i discovered most companies can create uh, a product i mean maybe if it's time machines it might be tough and in biotech you know you can't always solve cancer but for the most part in the things that i've done in it we've been able to build a product it may take longer it may take more capital, but more or less we we end up uh, winding our way into uh, a product that we release the real problem is that's just table stakes. The companies that I invested in that went on to success and the ones that I was a part of as an operating executive, those companies have what I came up with a term called market engineering skills. And what are those? Those are things like storytelling, uh, category creation, messaging, positioning. These are the, the tenants of market engineering. And unless the team has these skills, whether they're innate or they understand that they must develop them, determines typically whether or not that company is going to go on to success. And that's really what the book is about, is showing people how to become market engineers like Steve Jobs was, or Larry Ellison, or Tom Siebel, or Mark Benioff. I mean, these are fantastic market engineers. I doubt that they would call themselves that. But, uh, but for the, the sake of a term, that's really what I describe it as, because in order to be successful, they need to know how to engineer a market. And those attributes that I just discussed are the tenets of that. Talk about what makes the traction gap so difficult to get across. Why is it the toughest part of the journey? So the gap exists in the framework between this point that you declare minimum viable product. And one thing I'd like to say about that is until that point, you kind of have a free pass in terms of the way that investors think about you. Um, that is, it may take a while to get to an MVP. And I would argue, and I stated in the book, you actually don't want to declare MVP too early. You, wanted to, you actually want to get to a point where you're pretty dang confident that you've got enough feedback. People have been willing to use the product. You've got a lot of data, that quantitative and qualitative data, that showcases the fact that this thing is ready to be commercialized. 
Um, and I say that because you really don't go on the revenue clock until you declare MVP. From MVP to reach these other value inflection points, MVR and MVT, as I describe in the book, you've got a certain amount of time. That certain amount of time is not defined by me. It's been defined by the industry, the, the venture industry. They track how long it has taken for B2C companies and B2B companies to reach certain revenue points or certain growth, you know, to achieve cert- a certain amount of daily active users in the B2C world, for example. So uh, these aren't my numbers. They're just the numbers I extracted out of doing hundreds and hundreds of interviews. So the, um, the point is, is that the reason it's difficult is because you, once you declare MVP, you have to actually engineer the market for your products. You need to understand that the the market is not going to just uh, it's not a field of dreams the fact that you built it is not going to determine whether someone's going to use your product you have to be able to clearly differentiate yourself in the form of a new category you need to be able to explain why that category matters what are the attributes of the category and what my buddy christopher lockhead who wrote a book called play bigger which is all about category creation what he would say is you need to explain the from to from a world that exists the way it currently does with your products and or services to a world that's much better. And so these are the characteristics that companies must, they, they have to have the content in place. They have to have the evidentiary proof, customers or references or uh, um, authentic, you know, authentic uh, people who can corroborate the value of your, of your products and services. You know, in the B2C world, that, that might be somebody like, you know, Kim Kardashian, you pay a celebrity to endorse your product. In the B2B world, though, it might be the CIO of a Fortune 500 company who's uh, experimented with your product. So, this, this, this gap exists because you're on the clock to go in the SaaS world from what you, the, there's a described path that Battery Ventures, uh, he, they call it T2D3, triple twice, double three times. And that means triple in uh, revenue from one to three, and then double, double, double. So you're going one, three, nine, roughly one, three, nine, 25, 50. That's roughly the way that it looks in ARR. Um, it turns out that there's a, a similar curve, but a different metric in consumer. It could be monthly users, daily active users, a bunch of different, a bunch of different uh, scorecards that are kept. But the fact is you need to kind of follow that curve. And if you're not on the curve or above it in terms of growth, then you become, it becomes very difficult for you to raise capital from the, from the next venture group. Uh, you raise group, you know, you've raised venture from maybe an earlier stage group. Now you're trying to go raise more capital from um, a later stage group. And they, they're not measuring you on how good it's going to be. Great PowerPoint and, and a wonderful demo. They're going to measure you on how good it has been and whether they can, whether they believe there's a total addressable market that's going to make your company successful. So this is a really, really difficult period because you typically don't have tons of proof in the form of revenue, customers, et cetera. You have some proof, but not a ton of proof. And so you need to be able to uh, traverse this traction gap, this, this time period of roughly three to three or four years. You need to be able to get through this effectively. And if you can't, you're going to be on the du- you'll be in the dustbin of of technology companies for sure yeah so i'm understanding that it, it's really important before you kind of set out to cross this this chasm this gap uh, of of getting 
traction with your product, you know, you, you want to be as prepared as possible, right? Uh, what's that thing they used to say? Failure to prepare is preparing for failure is what I was thinking. But it's hard to know if you're ready or not, right? A lot of these things like inflection points and they seem more qualitative than quantitative. And I'm just wondering, like, how do you determine you're ready? Is there a checklist you got to cover? Do you um, read the book, understand the framework? Uh, what, what are the major things you need to, to do before you go out on this journey? Well, I mean, it was one of the things I did for the book is I did a lot of research and talked to a lot of people. So what I'm going to tell you are from the, inter- you know, the, it's the qualitative feedback in the interviews about what, what successful companies did. So what I, what I created with uh, our team was a set these value inflection points. I set a, a, a an assessment program. It's actually I built it in in SurveyMonkey. I probably want to redo it in something else, but for right now, it's in SurveyMonkey. So we give the management team um, a set of questions. You know, I ask the CEO, "Where do you think you are um, in terms of of the framework? Do you think you're at initial product release? Do you think you're at MVP? You know, where where is it in the in the from ideation through scale? Where are you?" And so typically the CEO will tell me, well, we believe that we're at, um, we're at IPR. We're initial product. We have an initial product. We don't believe we are MVP. Okay. So there's a set of questions that are associated with each one of those phases and, or each one of the stages of the, uh, that, that take you from one value inflection point to another. Give me an example. Here's some of the questions that we asked the management team, and we asked them to do it independently and answer between strongly agree and strongly disagree. And then we ask at the end, that generates a quantitative response by the team. But then we also ask the qualitative question, tell us why you said this or tell us why you scored it that way. So I'll give you an example. Um, If you think that you've reached or you're reaching minimum viable category, here's a set of some of the types of questions we ask. We're developing, documenting, validating, clear and compelling competitive positioning. We're developing an elevator pitch, a precise description of what we do. All employees in our company are learning the company's elevator pitch so they can deliver it. We have developed and improved and documented our company mission statement. What else? Let's see. We're, we're engaged uh, with potential customers to get their feedback before developing the product or service. So this is an example at one of the stages where uh, before you get to minimum category, you're, you've just passed through ideation. These are the kinds of questions that we ask you and ask the team. There's a bunch of others that are as well. And then those all get scored. And the interesting part out of this is where we have divergence. Convergence is actually pretty, pretty easy. Um, it's when half the team or a few members of the team strongly agree and a few members of the team strongly disagree where we get the real interesting results. So, yes, there is a checklist. The checklist is are these um, questions that are associated with each one of these stages. And, um, and so you can go in and, and dig in with the team and uncover why it is um, that we, there's a difference of opinion and try to remove the, you know, the sort of finger pointing between people and, and give some, some feedback between the team. And then at the end, come up with some action items to, uh, to solve it. So yeah, there is a checklist. It's in the book, um, but I, I extracted it all into this um, into these assessment surveys that uh, I use with uh, with teams. Gotcha, gotcha. So that's kind of how you quantify the qualitative aspects and we'll let people read the book if they want more. <laughs> Where do the most common roadblocks seem to occur in your experience uh, when traversing the traction gap? Well, I think most of the teams 
um, that I've invested in, or I think most of the teams that that uh, venture invests in, or even non-venture, it doesn't have to come from venture capital. Most of the, the the investments go into people who are, at least in the technology industry, they're technologists, they're engineers, and so the um, missing piece is that few, very few, by the evidence of the amount of number of failures out there, is very few are market engineers. Very few understand how to build a category, why it's critically important, why to never start demand gen until you're sure that, you have a, that you've created a category and that people recognize that you're the category leader, the thought leader in that category. If you invest in demand gen prior to reaching that minimum viable category um, uh, value inflection point, you are probably going to, to spend your company to death. And, and the reason is that, I mean, you can I'll just let you and your audience think about this. How many unsolicited emails do you get in your inbox and how many unwanted ads, digital ads, do you get on a daily basis? It's pretty high, right? Nobody knows, nobody knows you. You have no credibility, your company. Nobody, until you reach the position of a thought leader in a category, most most companies that you're trying to sell to or consumers you're trying to sell to don't know who you are. You don't have any credibility with them. They're not going to risk their job looking at your stuff. And they're super busy trying to get their work done. So what do most venture capital companies do? What happens? They a company gets funded and immediately they put in place, you know, if it's a B2B SaaS company, they 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 build an SDR team and they start delivering outbound uh, messaging via email, et cetera. And, and the unopened rate is like, you know, 99.9 and even worse, your email gets thrown into spam and now you're blocked, you know, you end up getting blocked uh, because you're a bad actor by, by the, um, by the, you know, the, the communication companies. So before you built a brand, you're destroying it. So you have to build the category first, then you can be, and then you can begin to build your brand. Once you build a category, and I did this for Tom Siebel with Inter- with C three AI. He said when I when I came when I left venture and went back to him as his CMO, he said I want to build a new category. I want to build a category called I want to call it Enterprise AI. So we had to go and we had to define well what is Enterprise AI. And so we took we we wrote a bunch of content for that, and um, we made it uh, we made it so that way Google could scan it, and we got rated for it made sure we used a lot of terminology that people are already familiar with to define some new things that people weren't familiar with. And um, we, we built uh, a number of other assets, if, if you will, that began to establish uh, C3 AI as a thought leader in the AI space. We also then put Tom, it's easier when, you're, when your CEO is a rock star and people know who he is. So we got him onto all sorts of, you know, CNN cable, you know, whatever, Fox News, um, you know, Squawk Box, a bunch of different stuff. But you don't have to go that far. Um, but you do need to go. You can do what Tom did. He wrote a book that was pretty dang interesting. And we made sure we gave that to a bunch of people. And we began to build this notion of inter- what is enterprise AI. And we measured that weekly. How many people were searching for the term enterprise AI? And when we started, virtually no one was. Um, but a year and a half into it, it was it, we had ranked not only was enterprise i being uh, had gone way up in terms of number of direct search terms but c3 ai was also going up as a direct search term so at that point we were pretty confident that we had begun to build this category and we're being recognized as a leader in it and i actually didn't have to build any outbound demand 
I all I did was build an inbound demand handling SDR group. Well, what do you mean by that, Bruce? Well, we got thirty five hundred inbounds a week. I didn't have to do. I didn't have to spend money on on email that annoyed people and ads that were bothering people. We just answered, we just made sure that we connected the people who were interested in a demo or talking to us with the sales organization. So, I, I this is a this is a, a problem that I think is rampant in the in the in the startup world where they're you know when people raise money they they we got to do something and doing something was oh we have to do marketing um and what by marketing we mean demand gen uh, we don't mean thought leadership and category creation we do demand gen and then we start reporting on you know well how many how many deals are in the pipeline well you're going to spend a lot of your capital on that and you're not ready for it so one of the biggest issues between until you reach a point where you're confident that you have um, established a category, and it can take you know it can take 12, 24 months, and that's a problem for a lot of the venture community because they're looking around, going, "Where's the revenue? Where are the customers, etc." And you're spending time at conferences, speaking, writing books, you know, and content, and uh, and what and and so your proxy for revenue during that time period is what's the new name? Of, what's the category name that you've created? What's your position? What's your what does the market think of you and your company in terms of that particular category and position? So this is um, this is one of the things that will kneecap your your company, and I believe it's one of the the main reasons that startups fail. You've put together a great framework. I think the listeners, if they're interested, will find that framework. But I did want to mention the four core pillars. Uh, you mentioned them earlier, you know, and I'll list them really quick. It's it's your product architecture, your revenue architecture, team architecture, and then systems architectures. As you go through the value inflection points, when a startup finds out that uh, something needs to change, you know, maybe they've they they jump the gun on building a, a minimum viable product and they've built something that and they haven't engineered their market yet right and they're building something that or they've built something that maybe is not the right direction what should a startup do when it kind of discovers discovers that it that its product needs to change well i don't think i'm talking out of school here i think that uh, phil fernandez who's the ceo and founder of marketo would say that they built the wrong product and they scrapped it after a year and started over. So I think I think you need to declare the product idea dead, um, scrap it, and start over. So that's why you can't. <laughs> if you try to drag it along, it's just going to become a dead weight attached to you. So it's better just to say, "Look, this is what we this is what we discovered. It's, it was the wrong thing, but here's what we think we should be building." I mean, take a look at um, at what uh, what Slack did. Slack built TinySpec. They were a gaming company. They weren't a communications company, but they built this product that they this internal product that they used to communicate between the engineering team and the other and other people in the company. And they realized, hey, this is pretty good stuff. And that's what they ended up taking out to market and became Slack. So it's not the end of the world to declare your idea or the, you know that to be dead. And the sooner you can recognize it and do it, the better. The hard part is you probably should have done the the market IQ work that I talked about earlier before you engage in that. And a lot of times you'll just you'll end up running out of capital and then because you didn't prove anything. Well maybe what you did prove is you proved that you weren't capable of of identifying what the market really wanted at your your the the penalty for failure is the you know the dissolution of the company. Uh next let's talk I 
why scaling revenue prematurely can lead to disastrous consequences. Well, I think, you know, scaling revenues is really what happens when you declare MVP. And so by declaring MVP, now by definition, you said, okay, we're ready to go. We're going to bring this to market. We're going to, we're going to start asking people to pay for this, or we're going to build, you know, we have a revenue model, whether it's, whether it's a subscription or usage or ad base, whatever it is. And now you need to prove it. Well, that's the reason I say don't declare MVP too soon, because you, you may not really actually know what you're uh, what your uh, revenue model needs to be. You also don't necessarily know what the sales cycle is going to be. You know, if you're selling a $5 million product or you're selling a, you know, $50 a month product, those are two different, dramatically different sales cycles. And uh, so I think it's critically important that the the other element, which is it takes takes capital to generate revenue, you're going to be burning a lot of capital when you start to try to generate the revenue. So don't don't do it too early. You, can, you need to be convinced as the team that you've got the right business model, you got that is you've got the right pricing, the right pricing model associated with it that you have um, priced it correctly and um, that you can uh, you're you're now prepared to be able to start taking those 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 cycles from contact to cash and that you've got a prescriptive way of doing that. And I would argue that you really want to prototype that first with just a few customers, a few things, begin to get a sense of how long it takes to do this. And my argument has always been, at least in the B2B space, is it's the management team to go out and do the first sales, you know, from probably sales one through 50. And that don't hire a big expensive sales organization, go do it when you don't really know what it takes to get it done. And until you know that you you can create a deal close a deal and all the elements and steps in between that are required to connect those two dots until you can do that it's not time to hire a sales organization a lot of companies tend to want to do that earlier again because i think that they get they get this injection of cash and, and when they do they um they feel compelled to uh, to begin to generate the revenue cycle so another one of the four core pillars is is kind of your team architecture and one of the biggest causes of startup failures uh, is related to your team and team composition and basically human beings having challenges with each other. So what kind of challenges do you see teams struggling with and how does that inform your approach when when it comes to, you know, what you do? Yeah, a lot of times, you know, the initial team are friends, right? People who've worked together before. And a lot of times you can see the struggle where you've got two people who want to be, they want to be co-CEO. Well, you know, this is not, this is not a game. It's not a hobby. It's not about hanging out with your buddies. It's a business and someone has to be in charge. And so someone needs to own and, and the people below that position work for that person. And that doesn't always fit into everybody's idea of a great time. And a lot of people aren't capable of doing it. As I, I think I said earlier, a lot of people think about, you know, they want to be, they, they think about the glamour of being a CEO. I, I would argue whether glamour is a great, you know, whether that is an attribute of being a CEO. But uh, a lot of people think they want to be a CEO. And then when they get the job, they realize it's a, it's a pretty dang difficult job. And a lot of times you're going to have to fire people you like. A lot of times the team that you initially hire, the startup team, is not the team that once you get to something like minimum viable repeatability and you're trying to scale the company, they're not scalable. A lot of people, as you, I think you pointed out, you know, humans, we're, we're all, we all have our issues. And a lot of times that's, that 
creates a dysfunctional organization and those people need to be removed out of the company unfortunately and that ends up with a lot of you know a lot of animosity um and other things so the um one of the courses i i, I took a lot of in, in, i was an engineering major so um i had to take some course up it was my parents wanted me to graduate so um i had to take, take this organizational behavior course is the only thing that was out there that i could take to, to satisfy the requirements and so i took this course and i thought oh my god this thing is the most ridiculous thing i've ever taken what is this maslow's hierarchy of needs you know survival self-actualization yeah it's really terrible you know why, who uses this stuff you know i want hard science i want chemistry math physics you know things with answers the most important thing on the planet is human organization was was organizational behavior understanding the person who sits on the other side of you what you know what's driving them at home what's driving them from you know a professional standpoint trying to figure out where they are you know are they are they suffering financially that means they're going to be in survival mode are they you know are they already you know, wealthy or come from a wealthy family and have no issues. You know, they're just in di different people in different positions in life. And you need to figure out pretty quickly, you, you need to be um, an empath like on Star Trek. You know, you really need to understand who it is and, and, and the market. You need to understand that from customers and partners and investors. So the um, organizational behavior is critical. And I think a lot of companies end up, I've, I've seen, you know, uh, different teams that started out as friends that end up being at each other's throats uh, because of the pressure that a, a startup um, provides. There's not a lot of time. You feel under, you know, you've got to make decisions. You, um, if you're the CEO, you're going to make decisions that aren't popular. And uh, a lot of people don't like not being popular. So that's the um, that's what I see when it comes to teams. It's super critical from the moment that the company begins in perpetuity. It, it never ends. And um, you know the the best CEOs, the ones that um, that can figure this out, uh, go on to and and scale a great company. And they do it because these companies are team sports, right? It's not just an, it's not an individual contributor sport. So. Um, so that's what I see from a from a team standpoint. That particular pillar pillar is super critical uh, from from ideation and perpetuity. Are there any important questions about the pillars or anything else that I haven't really asked yet? Well, I think you you pointed at it. The the product revenue team and system those pillars gird the entire framework from the moment of ideation all the way through uh, scale. And as you pointed out, a different pillar tends to come to the fore depending upon which value inflection point you're at. So, product revenue, team, and systems are are those pillars. It's the you know the the taxonomy that I created uh, for this particular frame, framework. And um, the the thing I would say is the it's good at every at every value inflection point to reflect on you know, what worked and what didn't work in each one, against each one of those pillars. And, and I provide a, a checklist inside the book in the chapters. It's actually organized by this framework from ideation through MVT. And uh, I think it's, it's, it's a good checklist for people to, to, um, to review. If you don't want to kind of extract it from the book, there's actually a website that we created called tractiongap.com and there's a tab in that tractiongap.com website called resources. The venture firm I was with 
they ask you for your name and whatever, they're not going to contact you. So it's a, it's a, you know, it's a content wall, but they ask you for that. And then behind that, we created a bunch of infographics that I think are really super important because they extract all of this, all the metrics from the book and put it into a handy dandy infographic that you can print out. So you don't have to go calling through the pages of the book to figure out what the, the, these pillars are and, and the metrics associated with each one of the value inflection points. So I wanted to point that out because it's, although I do mention it at the end of the book, you'd, you'd have to go, you know, buy the book and then go look for it. So um, hopefully that'll be a, a shorter path to, to understanding what these things are. Well, it is short. I actually just did it. So I'm on tractiongapbook.com slash hashtag downloads. I just clicked on resources and yeah, everything's right here. I guess about the book. So it's not a book on theory. It's a, it's actually a prescriptive guide. It's, it takes you step by step on what you should do. So yeah, so I, I did that intentionally because I read these books too. And a lot of times I'm reading them, I go, well, that's great. It worked for Acme software or whatever, but what the heck does that have to do with me? What do I do? So I, I wrote the book to sort as a how-to guide for people so they could read it and get a better sense for what they need to do. And, um, and so far, I mean, if you, if you look at, if I just go on the evidence of all the book reviews that have been done, you know, we seem to, you know, a few negative ones, but mostly positive. And the fact that it's been, it's being used or has been used at Stanford GSB and Columbia University and University of Chicago booth, you know, the graduate programs for entrepreneurship, you know, I'd, I'd say, that, you know, it meets the test of academia, but more importantly, I think it meets the test of entrepreneurs who have read it and, and have commented it. So you can read what they say in the, on the Amazon reviews and uh, judge for yourself whether the book is meaningful or not. I'm, I think it's one of the best things, other than, you know, have my wife and my kids and grandkids, I probably, I'd say it's probably the most meaningful thing I've done in my life. And I'm glad that people have found value in it. So, um, there you have it. Excellent. All right. We will wrap it up there. Bruce, thank you. It was uh, great having you on the show. We're going to end the podcast. If you enjoyed listening, please subscribe uh, wherever you listen to your podcasts. If you're not subscribed already, and if you're feeling like an angel, leave us a rating. Bruce, thank you for joining the show. It was a pleasure having you on today. You bet. Thanks. 